John. John, who writes this gospel, is a friend of Jesus, and in his book, he's really excited, I think that would be the right word, to introduce us to his best friend, the Lord Jesus, and he tells us amazing things about Jesus in his book. Um, He starts his book with this overview of events even before time in history, and he says his friend, the Lord Jesus, is the originator of all that. That's quite a claim to make for a friend of yours, isn't it? And so he is very excited to introduce us to the real Jesus, the Jesus he knows, the Jesus who brings transformation. And this Jesus who created the universe and for whom the whole universe was created is the one who came down into this world to become one of us in order to rescue and redeem us. But John tells us that the very people he came to save rejected him, which is heartbreaking, isn't it? And we see it all the time. We see it today. People who just think Jesus is irrelevant, nothing to do with my life. And yet John wants to tell us he's got everything to do with our lives. Um, He shows us Jesus calling people to leave everything and to follow him, his first disciples. Um, He has, as I think you did last week with Ben, these signs that run right the way through his book that show us who Jesus is and what his mission's all about. So the first of those signs, the water into wine, which is probably familiar to some of us at least because it's read out at weddings, at the beginning of weddings. Uh, The Jesus who changed water into wine uh, and blessed a wedding is here with us now, that kind of language. So it's still relatively well known, that first sign, but it's not really about weddings. It's about real transformation and real change. And not only real transformation and change internally, but transformation and change from the old to the new. So an old covenant, the Old Testament, that's what testament means, the old covenant, into the new covenant. And Jesus is illustrating that in that sign. Um, But then what John does each time as he goes through his gospel, he has these, these signs or these miracles, and then he explains them with talky bits, narrative sections. And so in the very next section, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking to this professor of theology and saying that there's a need for internal change, which is what the whole water into wine thing is about. It's about a dramatic new birth, a whole new heart, a whole new way of living, a a new person that's born again. And that's really what the water into wine is about. It's It's a transformation. Next section, uh, just before the one we're in, is a Samaritan woman. And uh, I love the engagement there. Jesus, she's sort of being a bit coy and playing around and not really addressing the issue. And then Jesus turns it all around. And it ends that little engagement with people coming to believe in Jesus, not because of what he does, but because of the testimony of this woman. And they come out and they believe what he says too. And that's really what this next sign is about. Now, I just want to try as best as I can, to be simple this afternoon and talk about two things that I think are worth thinking through about this next sign. Two things that uh, I hope will challenge us. The first one will encourage us, but the second one will be a challenge to us about why he does this sign and what it actually means. So this, this sign is not an end in itself. It's a signpost to something. He doesn't just do this because he has power to uh, help this sick boy. He does it to illustrate who he is and what his mission is about, and how we're to respond to that. So we don't want to get caught up in miracles and signs as if they're an end in themselves. They're not. They're there to point us to Jesus and his mission. So here's the first thing that, um, that strikes me from this sign. Trouble can bring blessing. Trouble can bring blessing. 
Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine, so again, an indication of what had already happened. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. So there's the problem laid out for us in John chapter 4, verse 46. We've got a nobleman, someone who works for a king, and he has a son who is seriously sick. The man probably works for King Herod, that's probably his job. And so he has position and status and authority. But of course, none of those things are a guarantee against trouble. Money can't save you from trouble. Position can't save you from trouble. Status can't save you from trouble. Influence, power, none of those things will stop trouble coming. I was fascinated to read uh, a while ago about the struggle that uh, a fairly famous pastor in America had uh, with his son, uh, Rick Warren. Some of you may have heard of Rick Warren. His son committed suicide. Now, he's, uh, he was the pastor of a huge church in America, really influential, trusting God, born again. And yet here's a son who finds life unbearable and commits suicide. That must have been very hard for him, I would think. Hearing him talking about it was difficult to listen to. But it's a, it's a mistake to think that the more godly you are, the more spiritual you are, the less trouble you'll have. That's not true. That's simply not true. John Travolta, you know him. What a sad situation he found himself in a few years ago when his son died. Now, speaking as a father, I think that must be one of the hardest things you have to face in life, the death of a child. That must be pretty unbearable. We have family who lost two sons and other friends who've lost children. I think that must be a really desperate place to find yourself in. So you can understand why this guy is trying any, anything, anything to get help here. He's got a son who is desperately ill. There's no NHS, there's no antibiotics or anything like that. He's got a son who's really ill and likely to die, and so he is going to find any help he possibly can. And this father must have been almost going out of his mind to try and get help here. And I guess this man felt weak and desperate. He didn't want his son to die. That's clear. He'll do anything to save him, including turning to this young rabbi from the north who is supposedly meant to be able to do extraordinary things. No doubt he'd heard about Jesus, because by this time in John's Gospel, news had spread fairly far and wide. They knew he was different. He could do stuff that other people couldn't do. And so he comes on a journey to see this young preacher. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The first point is really simple. Trouble, hardship, heartache, even great loss, are sometimes the means that God uses to wake us up to himself and our desperate need of him. This Jesus stuff... It's all well and good for those who need a crutch, you know, the weak, the people who don't really have the guts to face life. That's what you Christians are like, aren't you? You're all weak. That's why you need God. I've heard that so often 
from lots of different people. That's what religion is, really, a crutch for the weak. People who see no need for Jesus, no need for salvation, no need for redemption, no need for forgiveness, no need for eternity, none of those things. They're all just irrelevant. Until, often, they're brought crashing down through trouble. And they get to the bottom and they suddenly realise that they haven't got the resources and they haven't got the answer and they haven't got the things that they need. And God uses that to wake them up to where they really are. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. I have a friend. Well, I had a friend. He's in heaven now. But I had a friend who was in a very successful job. He had a lot of responsibility. He was doing very well in his job. And uh, then things changed. He had a move of house. His marriage fell apart. And he ended up in prison, which was quite a thing because he was old when he, older when he went to prison. Old. He was in his 50s. Uh, when he went to prison, and it was, it was devastating. He, he lost everything. His family wouldn't talk to him anymore, and he was at absolute rock bottom. And in the prison that he was at, there was a, a chaplain, um, you know, a religious vicar kind of person, who would come in and speak to all of the inmates of this prison, and he talked to this friend of mine, and my friend said, why on earth do you want to bother with me? What, what are you bothering with me at all? He was so low, he couldn't believe that anybody would want to talk to him at all. And yet this chaplain spoke to him about the Lord Jesus and the hope and forgiveness and joy that the Lord Jesus brings. And my friend was saved. Really, genuinely born again. Came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what it took was the loss of job, loss of his marriage, loss of his business, loss of his liberty, loss of his dignity. It took absolutely everything. The second example is a slightly more personal one. I would say that the moments in my own life where I've felt right at the end of myself, at the lowest point, are the times when I have experienced Christ's grace and his love more powerfully than any other moment. Now, I love singing, and it's been lovely to sing with you this afternoon. There's something joyful about singing, isn't there? But it's not those moments that are most significant for me spiritually. It's the moments when I was absolutely at the end of myself. And then Jesus was more precious and more close and more real than any other time. The Puritans, who were a group of Christians who lived about 400 years ago, had a phrase for this. They said that the fruit grows in the valleys. And what they mean by, meant by that is in life's experiences, when you're down in the dark valley... That's where the fruit's growing. That's where God's doing his thing, where he's bringing us to himself, where he's opening our eyes to how desperately we need him and how good he is and how faithful he is and how loving he is. As we see at the end of this account in John 4, the result for this man and his family is wonderful. So the initial trouble proved to be a means of blessing rather than disaster. So let me encourage you this afternoon to see the hard thing that you're going through at the moment, not as necessarily some satanic attack where you know, you're under great pressure and it's all about destruction and you're going to fail, or as an excuse to think life is just pointless, I'm, I'm going through this, nobody really understands or can comprehend how difficult this thing I'm going through is. Rather than seeing it like that, maybe just see it as an opportunity to come near to the very one who made you 
and is through this difficult thing that you're going through calling you to himself. It's a different way to see struggles, isn't it? Not as just something to be endured, but as actually a means that God is using to change you for good. It's a very simple thought, but that's the first thought that this sign brings to me. God uses the difficult things to bring us to himself. The second is probably the more important thing, the most important thing about this sign. What is it a signpost to? What is it pointing us to look at here in John 4? Well, I think it's this, that faith in Jesus' words, not his miracles, is the thing that we're called to do. Faith in Jesus' words, not his miracles, is what we're called to. Doesn't it strike you as odd that this man implores Jesus, he pleads with Jesus to come with him, and then all of a sudden he seems to suddenly be at peace and trusting Jesus' words? That is the point of the sign, I think. It's ultimately a sign that demonstrates the power of the words of the one who is the word of God. At the very beginning of the gospel, I said John introduces his friend Jesus in his timeless, eternal position as creator of all things. And he describes him as the word. And here is the word speaking words that are to be trusted. That's the call of this sign, to look at who is speaking and look at the power of those words and to trust those words. This is how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus. The Word was God. That Word, the self-revelation of the Father, that person who is completely and inextricably linked to the Father, so much so that he is as much God as God the Father is God, that's the one who's speaking here to him, stood before him, the one he's pleading with for help. That is the person he's speaking to and the person who speaks back to him. The one who has power to change a situation just with words. Now that seems beyond reason, almost unreasonable to believe that. That a man can change things just with his words. But we need to remember that the same person who spoke the universe into being is the person who speaks to this man. Jesus speaks and a universe is constructed and comes into being. Let there be light. That's Jesus speaking. Let there be light. And he creates the universe. And now he says, your son, he's healed. Just those words. Now my guess is that the father here doesn't fully appreciate who is standing in front of him. But to his credit, he does believe Jesus' word. He took Jesus at his word and departed. That's what John tells us. John is really emphasizing that. It's, he took Jesus at his word and departed. But then there's further to that confirmation and more belief. Verse 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he's looking for confirmation that his faith is in the right place. I want to know that I'm trusting the right person and that these words that he's spoken are powerful and trustworthy and life-changing and saving words. After all, it's quite a claim that Jesus makes here. Can Jesus really heal a son with a word from such a distance? 
As he meets his servants, they tell him that his son is well. He asks the time to confirm his faith in that word. Now, if that's right, there are a couple of things that are probably worth saying about that. Firstly, I think rather like Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, like Peter in Mark's Gospel, it is possible to only see part of the picture and for faith to be somewhat incomplete. And I think that's what's happening with this dad here. He's trusting. He doesn't know quite what he's trusting or, or quite the full extent of what he's trusting, who he's trusting, but he's just looking. But that faith is still incomplete and weak at this point in certain ways. The truth is, I think, that often for us, we say we're trusting Jesus. That's quite a familiar sort of Christian-type phrase. I'm trusting Jesus. But the truth is that that trust, that faith, is pretty weak and pretty fragile, and it sometimes feels like we're just clinging on with our fingernails. We don't really understand how it's all working out, but we've got this sense that there's somebody who can deal with us and can help us, and we're sort of... In, in, it's interesting, thank you for picking, I presume you picked the hymns, uh, when my faith is frail and weak, we sang about that. And it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like I'm only just sort of clinging on to him, just, it, it's difficult, I can't quite see how, all it, how it all works out. It's almost like a faltering hold on Jesus. But here's something to praise God for. The issue is not how strong my grip on his words is. The issue is how powerful and transforming those words are. The power is not located in us, it's in the Lord Jesus. And that's who we're clinging on to because he's strong and powerful and he does what he says. Uh, And that's the sort of second challenge here. Where is my faith located? What is it that I'm trusting in life? Is my faith centered on what Jesus does for me? the sort of the miracles and the signs, or is it centred on who he is and what he says? There's a constant recurring problem in the gospel accounts. We have crowds of people following Jesus for all sorts of wrong reasons, some simply because they enjoyed the grub, which I always think is quite a funny reason. Um, A bit sad, but it's quite funny. You know, it's a free lunch, so that's why we follow Jesus around the lake. Uh, Sometimes they follow him because it's just spectacular. Some of the things he was doing were just so unusual and, well, miraculous, of course. And so they were following because it was a great spectacle. But the problem is their faith, the faith of these people is not centred in the Lord Jesus himself. It's centred in what he can do and the spectacular. And what Jesus is calling us to do right the way through the Gospel, particularly through John's Gospel, but I would say right from Genesis right the way through to Revelation, the end of the Bible, the issue is... Am I trusting what God says? And specifically when we come to the New Testament, here's God speaking. God in our world, as one of us, speaking words, and he's challenging us, will you trust what I say? Where's the focus of my faith? It's not in what Jesus can do, particularly, it's in who he is. Now, let me illustrate that with a bit of a weird illustration. Um, Claire, my wife, if I loved her simply because she did the dishes and made me food, what would you think of our marriage? You would think that was pretty rubbish, wouldn't you? I, I think, rightly so, you would think you're, you're a bit of a chav, Paul, because that's not a good reason to love your wife. 
really. Um, and fair point. I don't love Claire because of what she does. I'm so grateful for what she does. But I love her because of who she is. I have a, um, an apprentice trainee at, uh, at Hall Green, Jason. Jason is a very generous fellow, and he often buys me coffee, which I slightly feel guilty about that he buys me very nice coffee. And uh, if I only liked him because he bought me nice coffee, what kind of mentor would I be? Well, I'd be a bit of a user, wouldn't I? That would, that would not be appropriate. I really appreciate Jason for who he is. He does great stuff, but I really like Jason for who he is. All I'm trying to illustrate there is the difference between seeing by faith Jesus and trusting Jesus for who he is and what he says rather than just what he can do, just for the spectacular, just for the unusual. I want to see him and treasure him and know him and trust him and listen to what he says and, and hear that and respond in faith to what he says and rejoice, in when I, rejoice when I hear his words, and most importantly, to do what he says. Not just to say they're clever words, but to do the things he says. Real faith in Christ is about increasingly appreciating Jesus for who he is, and treasuring him, and loving him with all my heart. I said, when Scott was asking me what I've learned over this last week, uh, this last year, I, I said that that command to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is the very center of all of God's words, requirements for us. It's interesting in the Gospels, that's immediately followed by a section where Jesus is describing who he really is. So if I'm to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the way that I do that now in the New Covenant is to see Jesus and treasure him and love him and follow him, and hear him, and do what he says. So think for a moment, what does faith in Jesus mean for you? Really, what does it mean for you? Is he the one that you come to when you're in a muddle, and pretty much only when you're in a muddle? You know, you get yourself into a di difficult situation, and then, you know, you're down on your knees, and you're saying, Jesus, I, I, I don't know what to do here, this is, this is awful, please help me. And then he does help you, and then you've forgotten all over again, and you're, you know, you're just pressing on with your own life. I think many of us live like that. Jesus is like a, a genie in a lamp, isn't he? You get into trouble, you rub the lamp, and out pops Jesus and says, yeah, what can I do for you? And I say, well, I've got a bit of a problem with this. He sorts it out, and then, okay, back in the lamp, that's fine. That's not real biblical faith. That's not what a relationship with God is about. It's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about loving and treasuring the Son of God who came. And he did give himself for me, so he does do stuff, absolutely. But it's him. That's where the focus of my faith is. It's him. And connected with that, back to this main issue of his words and, and seeing his words as the most important thing. Um, I, I think there's a challenge here. Verse 48 and verse 50, it's really interesting what, um, what Jesus says and what the people say here. Um, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. That's verse 48. And then verse 50, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man saw no miracle, did he? 
all he did was believe what Jesus said. That was, that's the center of this sign, which is really ironic because the signs are about public demonstrations of Jesus' power to demonstrate who he is, God, and what he's come to do, save the world. But this man doesn't see the sign, but believes. That's why I think this is such an important sign in John's Gospel. It's such an important miracle. The call is, are you going to trust what Jesus says, or are you not? So I can apply that in lots of different ways. Let me start with probably um, one of the most difficult. Jesus says lots of things about following him. So he gives us commands. If I love the Lord Jesus, then one of the tests of that love and relationship is that I do what he says. How much do I believe what he says will be seen in how obedient I am to those words? Now, every one of us in the room, without exception, is disobedient to the words of Jesus. We are. The things that Jesus says are so demanding and so beyond our natural ability to perform, we need supernatural intervention so that we're forgiven for where we fail and we're empowered to live for him. But the test is, are you doing it? It's not just simply saying, oh, I can't, I'm rubbish, I'm a failure. I know that, I am a failure. But I want, in the power of the Spirit, to strive after Jesus' words because my faith is in what he says. And some of what he says is to do things and stop doing other things. There's There's a challenge for us about how seriously I'm taking his word. But then, probably more in line with what's going on here in this sign, am I trusting the promises that Jesus makes? Am I going to trust his word? He's promised that just as he was raised from the dead, so we will all be raised from the dead. And that resurrection of his will not only bring about our forgiveness, but our future eternity, if we trust his words. Am I trusting that? Jesus tells me through the apostles, through his, his men, that he is working all things for good for those who love him. Am I going to trust that word? In all the situations I'm going through, however complex and however difficult and however insurmountable they seem, Jesus, the Lord of all time and history, is still working out all things for good for those that love him. Am I going to believe him? Am I going to trust him? What does this sign teach me? Well, it teaches me that Jesus has power in his word to do things way beyond what I can do or even imagine. He can speak a word about a boy who is dying miles away, presumably, and that word will be enacted and that boy will be rescued from death. Now, I can't do that. So this sign demonstrates to me something of the divine power of the Son of God. But this sign also challenges me specifically about trusting his words, not even when I can't see the spectacular, even when it doesn't, it isn't obvious how he's working things out. Am I going to trust his word and live by that word? My my conviction is that many of us sort of play the Christian game and we talk about the Christian things and we talk about, yeah, we just talk about the ideas and the concepts at some sort of arm's length distance as if this person, Jesus, is not 
not close and not real and not speaking and not challenging us to trust him and walk with him and love him. And I don't want that. I don't want that for myself. I, I'm sure that your uh, elders here don't want that for you as a church. What a poor thing that would be if we just went through the motions of religion and didn't trust the one who came and spoke the universe into being and now speaks to us through his words. So what are you going to do with his words? Will you listen? Will you do it? Will you trust him?